Namaste everyone. Welcome to the Charvak Podcast. This is your host Kushal Mehra. All right. Today we talk about something that actually I'm kind of guilty. I should have done it a long time ago, but uh, better late than never. So today we will be talking about the Bengali Hindu genocide. But first of all, I want to remind everyone. I actually did not know about it. Apparently, there is a, a World Genocide Month. So this month is supposed to be the World Genocide Month. I did not know. Uh, something like this even existed I'm, i'm being very honest so until i actually got in touch with uh, haf and i found out about it and so this month we're going to be focusing on the bengali hindu genocide and to discuss that today i have with me deepali kulkarni from the hindu american foundation and uh, debelina biswas so thanks for coming on the podcast uh, deepali and debelina thanks so much for having us namaste Thank you. Uh, all right, so uh, so we're going to be going about uh, this podcast in a particular way. So I have a few questions lined up for Dipali, and I have a few questions lined up for Devalina. So uh, so I'll request both of you. Uh, so Dipali, I'm going to first come to you. But uh, I, this is just a request that uh, if you could tell a bit about yourself too, that would be really helpful, so that you know the listeners and the viewers of the podcast can actually know a bit about you guys. So, Dipali, let's start like this. So, let's. Why don't you tell everyone what exactly is the Bengali Hindu genocide, and what exactly happened? Uh, I mean, as in, what was the violence that happened against Bengalis and Hindu Bengalis uh, per se, and why do we have to categorize this uh, as a genocide? And Dipali, tell everybody a bit about yourself too. Sure. Uh, thank you. So to start, um, my name is Deepali Kolkarni. I'm the director of human rights at the Hindu American Foundation, um, and I am uh, born and brought up in the U.S. But my parents are from Gujarat, actually, um, despite my Marathi last name, which comes from my husband. So that's a little bit about me. Uh, but now um, on to much more somber topics. Um, why is this a genocide? And so to understand that, um, first we should go to the United Nations Genocide Convention, um, which defines genocide and tells us exactly what it is. And it's, quote, acts committed with intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnic, racial, or religious group, end quote. So the Bengali Hindu genocide happened when Bangladesh, um, through a democratic election, was attempting to secede from Pakistan. And so it had decided to do this on March 26, 1971. Um, but in anticipation of this event, Pakistan began a large-scale uh, attack on the uh, people of Bangladesh, um, which was at that time East Pakistan, to prevent it from uh, seceding. And so uh, this began with an Operation Searchlight, um, which started at Dhaka University, and it continued to kill um, and um, to kill, to displace, to rape uh, many Bengali Muslim in, uh, intellectuals, uh, many uh, individuals from all communities, but especially Hindus. And so uh, there's documented evidence of the intention to target Hindus in particular, who formed a majority of the victims. Up to two, up to two to three million people were killed, 200 to 400,000 women were raped, and 10 million were displaced. Um, and of course, numbers vary um, widely, but these are the most consistent uh, figures that we have. And the reason that we can say that Hindus in particular were targeted is because we have this evidence 
um, from the historical records. And I just like to note a few of the um, few of the types of records that indicate for us that this was a specific target of, of um, this was a specific project to kind of eliminate Hindus from that land. And the first was is the Hamdurk Rahman Commission report, which was issued from Pakistan um, after 1971. And it specified that the excesses committed by the Pakistani army fell into several overlapping categories. And one of those was the quote, deliberate killing of members of the Hindu minority, end quote. We also have reports from Archer K. Blood, the US Consul General of DACA, and Edward Kennedy, uh, a US um, senator at the time. And both have made clear statements explaining that this was a targeted uh, attack against Hindus, that Hindu villages, Hindu enclaves in DACA, and shootings of Hindus attempting to escape carnage um, occurred um, during that time. So this was in 1971 um, when Archer K. Blood and Edward Kennedy spoke up. And there were many government officials throughout the world that spoke up trying to draw the attention of the United Nations at that time. But I'm just mentioning a few. Um, India also documented that as many as 90% of the refugees coming in were Hindu. And so all of this evidence kind of clearly points in the direction that number one, this was a genocide. And number two, this was specifically targeting Hindus. Not only Hindus were the victims, um, there were victims from a variety of communities. Um, and so we need to stand up and remember all of these communities. Um, and we need to face the facts that this was a Hindu genocide and make sure that we're remembering the lost and honoring the survivors in a way that's authentic um, by, by acknowledging the facts and acknowledging the history. All right, so uh, uh, Debelina, I want to come to you now. Uh, so it's very important when we talk about, uh, I don't know how to put it, but it's very important to explain real stories when when we talk about tragedies. Uh, 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 I don't know. It's as if, you know, even right now in India, we're in the middle of a pandemic, but somehow, you know, data doesn't seem to, kind of have that kind of an effect on people's psyche as much as right. an individual story does. So, so Devalina, uh, obviously, I, I, I request you to tell everybody a bit about yourself also, but uh, you had family members that have survived that genocide. Now, uh, so my question to you would be that what, what was their reflection and how do they remember what, what happened, uh, you know, from 1971 onwards? Yeah, I'll answer the question briefly in two words before I tell you a little bit about myself and then I'll go in detail. The, they remember privately, partially, and we'll get to that about why, um, as to why I'm here, who I am and why I'm speaking in, in this moment and about this cause. Um, I'm, I was born in India, in Calcutta, I'm Bengali. Uh, on my father's side, I have family who escaped 1947-1950 uh, from Bangladesh. And I'm married into a family where members uh, fled uh, during 19, between 1965 and since then. So uh, my father-in-law specifically in 1971 with two of his grown-up sisters. So that's, and the oddest thing is that uh, on both sides of, the, of my family, uh, I think this is a very fairly common experience. It's a question of everyone knows in that generation and the next generation, most people don't know, and it has receded into the background. 
So through my entrance into family stories, as people get older, as people pass away, uh, and, and the pandemic is a background, you know, death comes closer and you begin to wonder what we are losing. Uh, it's happened on the Western border, Western partition, Eastern partition. Um, I entered into those stories. And so the story I heard was that um, of a family that was a rural family in Chittagong in Bangladesh. And they were settled there for several generations. They had ancestral homes, et cetera, and um, East Bengali culture. And then with the crackdown of uh, 25th March at night in 1971, the eldest son of the family saw that they could no longer keep the two, the two grown-up sisters safe because uh, with the onset of that violence, women were targeted and they, couldn't, they were systematically targeted. And as the, at first the killing was indiscriminate and later, I think they, what I hear from family members, from, from friends and family and relatives is that um, Hindu women were, were specifically soft targets. And so my father-in-law decided that they would have to flee. And the, at that time, if you understand and remember the Bengali psyche, Bangla, Bengal, uh, in the 20th century was a huge undivided space, geographical and cognitive. It was psychological space. 1905 partition of Bengal, most people didn't even, it, it, was, a, it was an inconvenience. They would travel back and forth across what we imagined to be the borders. 1947, again, there were families on both sides. Those who could flee fled and those who had to remain remained. And uh, then 1971. So there's this whole generation with this undivided sense. So the natural thing to do was to go where they had linguistic, ethnic, cultural continuity, which was West Bengal via the East Northeastern states. So the story is a little bit like this. So he, my father-in-law tells me that he, that he escaped uh, with his, he had to escape with the sisters. And apparently it was pretty common at that time to try and get smuggled out. So he contacted a Muslim friend, friend who was politically active, who then contacted a smuggler. We would call them smugglers now, I suppose, human smugglers. And at that time, apparently, they took 1,000 rupees per head. Um, only three people could get out. They were not allowed. That to is 1,000 rupees in 1971, right? Ah, that's what I'm told. Wow. Um, that's what I'm saying. Some people got lucky and they were able to leave. There were others who could not leave for various reasons. And they couldn't take movable property. So whether it was 47, 50, 1971, uh, you were at risk of being looted if you were taking property on the road. So they were told that the border was hot, so they had to disguise themselves. And at the arrival of a proper signal in some time when their beards were long and hair was longer, um, they dressed in very conservative uh, clothes, salvakumis, lungis, shirts, etc. And then they took a bus to Kamila, towards Agartala, um, Tripura, as many of the, the people who fled. They took those three routes, Assam, Tripura, West Bengal. And they reached the border at night. There was, you know, they had to be very careful. They couldn't talk to anybody. They pretended to be a family, a man traveling with two wives. And uh, so they were stopped and searched several times. Fortunately, they were not suspected or else there would have been a quote unquote body check to check the male suspects. And uh, they reached, and then they, there was a moment of tension where they were not sure if their human smuggler would actually deliver them to the other side of the border or not. And they managed to make it at night. There are stories of you know rainy nights, getting food in a furtive way, waiting for a quiet moment, and then to the other side. 
And then when they did cross the border, they took, uh, they went to the nearest railhead, uh, which was Agatala, and then towards Calcutta. And I'm told that other members of the extended family, this was a large joint family that was normal at the time, 20, 25 people, especially with uh, you know people who were pregnant, um, they traveled individually by other routes, other means, and they tried to reunite uh, when they did cross into India. So that's the story. Uh, I think in the telling of the story, I may have uh, omitted the fact that I also work with uh, nonprofits and have been working with nonprofits in San Diego. But you know, it's always uh, it's, as you mentioned with the pandemic, the personal story is an interesting way to understand how things affect more than one individual life. And yet we can testify to one story. So I have been very, very aware, and even now as I'm speaking, I'm aware that this is an intergenerational story and there are many like. Uh, the interesting thing is that everybody knew in my parents' generation, it was so common, uh, it was Ghar Ki Kahani, that it was not discussed. And it is so very curious that it has receded so much into the background that it has become a context. It's, and it has, again, it's again got to be told. Yeah, I, I kind of understand where you're coming from. You know, uh, I always say this so, to my Bengali friends. I was like, you know, there are a few communities in India who understand this very well. So Sindhis, the Punjabis, and the Bengalis. And we kind of understand what this means because, uh, I don't know, I mean, Hindi mein kehte na, ghar jiska gaya, wohi janta hai. Jiska ghar gaya, usi ko samaj padta hai. So okay. these three communities in India kind of share that common, uh, I don't know, trauma, anger, uh, loss. I don't know. I don't know how to put it. But but uh, you know the 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 reason we 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 showcase stories also is that I remember the famous example. You know, I was reading a book of this philosopher, you know, who talks about effective altruism, and it's way in a very weird way. Yeah the biggest problem effective altruists face is that is like you know we we tell people that you know if we do the math uh, you know donating for malaria nets in africa gives you a far better result as charity than say yes. something is like but still somebody sees tom's photo on the magazine and tom is this poor kid and tom's knee, uh, you know in need of help in in let's say california and everybody goes and helps tom because you can personalize with tom so, so I, I, I think it's very important that when we talk about genocide, you know, it's all good. We show, oh, millions of people died, millions dislocated, millions had to move from point A to point B. Uh, as Stalin said, you know, beyond a point, every death is just a statistic. Uh, it, it's Stalin was right. I don't like Stalin, but he was right there. Unfortunately, so, yes. Yeah. So, so that is a problem. So, Dipali, so to come back to you now. So, as you said, you're from Hindu American Foundation. So, so what is HAF doing in its own right to create awareness about this issue? Because let me tell you, I'll be the first one. I mean, I'm guilty myself. I'm talking about this for the first time. I've been running this podcast for three and a half years. But then there is a first time for everything. I, I, I like just, you know, uh, in the last month and a half, I did a story on Jammu because everybody keeps talking about Kashmir. And I was like, Jammu ke mein baat hi nahi karta. So I made sure I talk about Jammu. So now what is HAF doing specifically as far as the Bengali Hindu genocide is concerned? Yeah. Um, so first, I'd just like to take a moment to thank Debelina so much for sharing 
uh, her family's story and for sharing this Bengali Hindu perspective, because I think that's so important um, that, you know, it's, it's for the Bengali Hindu community um, that we're speaking out. And so we want to make sure that um, we're centering their stories because um, that's, that's what's the most important thing is that to remember the lost and celebrate survivors. Um, but just a little bit about HEF in case some of your listeners aren't familiar. Um, the Hindu American Foundation is an educational and advocacy organization that focuses on educating the public about Hindus and Hinduism and um, just does so much work um, in the United States, um, making sure that Hindus are correctly uh, represented, making sure that laws um, are not uh, discriminatory towards Hindus, such as the swastika bill, which is trying to label the swastika as a hate symbol um, or um, issues with caste where um, caste is, there's a, uh, you know, moments where caste is being uh, made synonymous with Hindu, Hinduism in law potentially. So a lot of uh, really important work in the United States to make sure that Hindus are accurately represented, that, um, that there is, um, you know, a strong um, understanding of what Hinduism is. And then also abroad, um, just looking uh, towards countries in which Hindus, other countries in which Hindus are minorities, and then helping all the minorities in, their con uh, in those countries and, and raising awareness about the challenges that they're facing, the persecution, the continued harassment, um, you know, rape, um, abductions, and so on. Um, so coming back to 1971, there's a very, there, to put it simply, the reason that we, HEF is raising awareness about this is because it's a humanitarian issue. Um, hin these Hindus deserve to be remembered. Um, we need to remember our history. Um, and just as with any other egregious act of violence, um, we stand against it. And remembering it is an act of nonviolence to say never again should something like this occur towards any population. And in addition to remembering history, honoring um, you know, survivors, remembering those that were lost, a really important part of why we should remember the 1971 Bengali Hindu genocide um, is that Bengalis are still, or Bengali Hindus, so Hindus in particular, are still uh, targets of violence every day on a daily basis in Bangladesh. And this is part of what Bina da Costa calls brittle peace. It's the same issue that was, uh, you know, a cause for such, you know, heinous acts of violence during partition continue to be the same issues of, of mob attacks, of, um, of government complicity in violence, of um, civil society complicity in violence. All of those things are continuing to this day. So the displacement, the killing, the rape, those are still an issue. And so we need to speak out for the Hindus in Bangladesh today um, because of that same violence as it continues to go unacknowledged from 1971, from 50 years ago, is taking place today, um, albeit on a smaller scale, partially because so many Hindus have migrated elsewhere. Um, but that's a very short answer to what is, um, what, you know, is a very, very complex question. And, and uh, I'm sure uh, Debelina can speak more to this as we continue our conversation. 
No, so uh, Devalina, I, I I have always wondered about this, and I don't know how to put it, but it's a, even when it comes to the partition trauma, right? Now, in some weird way, nineteen, you know, the Punjab partition happened in nineteen forty-seven. Um, but in terms of, I don't know how to put it because I have to be very careful when I'm putting this because, I mean, I'm a Punjabi myself, but in terms of footage coverage you know even today i feel the punjabi partition uh, you know kind of gets far more coverage and i guess it must be part of india and indian psyche's pakistani obsession i guess it's just it is a byproduct of that but uh, you know in a very weird way we don't listen to the stories of the you know bangladeshi partition mm. and the genocide after that so why has there been a, or do you think there has been some sort of a silence also on part of bangladeshi hindus uh, because let's say the partition happened and then you know bangladesh came much later on so uh, in a way the society as a large had already dealt with one major partition so uh, do you think there was some sort of uh, you know you know societal uh, ease and we kind of did not pay as much attention as should have been given to the bangladeshi or the bangladesh partition or the you know the bengali uh, partition i think you just raised two very important interesting and quite uh, sensitive points one is that um where do we hear these stories now especially you know because we are always coming into some midstream discourse like okay every generation enters something and the second point is about um uh, whether uh this who who it really is about who hears it and i think i i've already mentioned one or two things one is that this was bracketed by time and context so each generation so for that for that generation Uh, and it was generational trauma i think they were concerned with survival so they didn't speak about it when they did it was speaking to each other to commiserate i don't know if they if many of them had time to devote to the memorializing or making this into something beyond the personal survival story i don't know what i do for some it was just a complete i think um and this is probably psychologizing but i can i know this that it's a complete refusal to accept that something so massive happened but you also raise the point of uh, what i would call fatigue and yes in the 20th century india whichever state you look at or the subcontinent in general had gone through so many conflicts and significant ones so i would say that in the in the noise some voices got lost but to make it more specific beyond the ghargar ki kahani that it was so well known that it was not mentioned i would say that um for subsequent generations they focus you know it i mean our parents try to make us live i think that think people some women who survived the jewish holocaust would also focus on they was they were you know they were silent because they wanted their children to have normal happy lives and that was part very true for the for the, everybody who came into india on the eastern border and who could make uh, make a life for themselves but uh, the silence is loud there are barriers beda beda around telling that you know the, what makes it easy to justify not telling the story and what makes it plain that there's a cost to telling it and so that depends on who is speaking where it's, where the stories are being told who's listening and how belonging 
and how is what is bengaliness what is national identity what is a religious how all of that belonging is interpreted so individuals have responded to this with silence based on how they've mapped their identity onto geography ethnicity religion etc but the conditions you remember the conditions for silence were there in each of these conflicts and there is no comparison or hierarchy of genocides but the sufficient conditions were met intimidation loss desecration uprooting landlessness so people who were rooted in a place for multiple generations were suddenly they suddenly found that you know there are phrases for this intimate enemy etc but they suddenly found that they were they could not exist there and that the, their linkage to the land their means of livelihood and their linkage to something sacred about the hope and the future generation the women the children the means of the, both those things were attacked so and then there's an imposed shame right for about uh, if you entered into the political or the public sphere there is this oh you're bringing it on you're causing communal conflict so for survivors it would be an internalized hyper awareness which is typical trauma of targeted violence i've heard from my family members of the sense of helplessness that the state which is the legitimate authority could not undo the wrongs to for its hindu citizens and so you know they would they would still consider bangladesh their janmabhoomi and you know india their karmabhoomi but you know th there is this sense that they were looking to a legitimate authority to undo this wrong and they it was not done and then it passed into oblivion and then they i think there is a sense that uh, oh it was not easy in india either uh, it, it, it there were so many people suffering so some people who felt they had escaped the very worst stayed silent and i think it's there in every community that you've mentioned before but there's definitely a refusal to pass it on i know of some stories where you know the uh, grandparents will refuse to name their grandchildren with an identity religiously identifying last name so they would be you know the first name and a middle name and they would maybe stay on in bangladesh but they would definitely send their children to india or other countries for education and for marriage so there is this sense and what i think it's uh, you know they will point they don't want to be accused of pointing to communal conflict or of politicizing sensitive history but it's there and for those so you know there is a gradual diminishing of the population and and that that contributes to silence and that they ex they're accepting that they, this in some way it is an imposed acceptance like they have to accept it there's no choice hmm. um and finally it's a language uh I, for that i've referred to this as the concept of bangla uh bengal the bhasha to many bengali speakers and to many people in bangladesh then and now calcutta was india and india calcutta M many didn't move very much westwards maybe bihar was the furthest very very few moved outwards so in when they found themselves in a certain political and, and cultural and social milieu uh who was hearing about the refugees who who wanted to know and elevate this cause and why and i think uh, it all together amounted to a silence that is almost self abnegation like a self erasure what is odd is that the experience of several million people is being written out of history and i think it's not so that's a, that's that's the tension the individual and the collective i would so say I, i'll give you a parallel uh, and i'll explain it to you so <laughs> pop culture is the best way to talk about trauma so i'll give you music so i remember you know it's a shame that sindhis not don't know about it i don't know why i know about it i'm not even sindhi but there is a brilliant singer called master chandar 
Now, Master Chandar uh, was a victim of the partition, like all the Sindhis were at that time. Sindhi Hindus, I'm even being even more precise. All the Sindhi Hindus who you know basically came out of Sindh and moved into India, and Sindhis were scattered all over the country. You know, in Mumbai, we had two major areas. In fact, one of the areas that they were, you know, given refuge is the area where I stay in Chembur. So there is a major area called Sindhi Camp. It's called Sindhi Camp. So all the Sindhis basically came and stayed there. So Master Chandar's music initially when he had come to India, he's a great, great Sindhi singer and writer. So Master Chandar would, you know, kind of come up with songs about uh, partition in Sindhi and write about it. Uh, in a very weird way, I guess Punjabis, because they took over Hindi cinema, Bollywood, I hate the word Bollywood. So I'm, I usually like to call it Hindi cinema. The Indians could not even manage their own original word. They had to call it Bollywood. So, it, so you know, Punjabi still, you know, you have that. It is always as if partition only Punjab ki hui thi. Baki kuch gaya nahi. Baki sab hamara hi hai. You know, so you know, angry Sunny Dal. Oye, karke chillara. You know, I don't know how else to put it, but it's it's just that Punjabis manage to make sure that their partition story was heard. I'm not blaming. I'm a Punjabi myself. So I'm not saying it's a bad thing. It's a good thing Punjabis managed to do that. But here's the thing. It's 50 years now, Debelina. So I'll come back to you. And uh, Dipali, you can also chime in after Debelina. But so what are Bengalis doing then, Debelina? I think that's the question we are asking. And that's a question that the Bengalis ultimately will decide. Because um, as you know, the Bengali diaspora is widespread in terms of linguistic diversity. Again, when we say Bengali here, you know, uh, I think it's very important to remember, that's why we're calling it Bengali Hindu, and I would agree with that name. It's important to understand who who identifies as Bengali. And I think that that overlapping identity has a lot to do with who is, who wants to remember this and who believes it's a it's a historical wound that is best left where it, where it is. So I would, I'll tell you this, um, 26th March is commemorated by Bangladesh as, you know, the beginning of their liberation war. Twenty uh, first February is, which is International Mother Language Day, was actually also Bangladesh's Bhasha Divash, the day they, you know, they they commemorated that in the nineteen fifties or fifty four, fifty six, I forget, as the day they they argued for the inclusion of the Bengali script and the language within the Pakistani system. Uh, so that there is an immense amount of memory of the beginnings of nationalism and the national movement in Bangladesh that eventually led to seventy one. So that is commemorated. But the specific targeting of the Bengali Hindu population of East Pakistan slash Bangladesh in 1971 is marked mostly by survivors and it is muted. And I would say the diaspora that I know does not want to publicly, uh, I think it's, there is a huge cost to public positioning uh, of, this, of this thing. And that is exactly a problem because in, you know, there, there, are, there are records in multiple uh, countries. There's evidence of targeting at scale. But I can say this, that some of the groups who have marked the memory and the event of the fact that specifically Hindus were marked at that time, marked out and, and targeted, uh, there are some small, there are some organizations, uh, Stories of Bengali Hindus, the Bangladesh Hindu Buddhist Christian Unity Council USA, there is Human Rights Congress for Bangladesh Minorities, and there is an ISPAD project, which is the um, I think Subcontinental Partition uh, Documentation Archive. And they, so again, these communities, and especially Stories of Bengali Hindus, I think has a, a very interesting page on, on the development and uh, the, you know, what happened 
and what led up to and what became the complicated history of 71. So as far as I know, uh, within families, it is, it is not an annual location, nor even a generational location. But I think as the generation passes on, just as with the 1947 generation, as the 71 generation begins to age, the marking is about, I think, a reassessing. So what happened? And what happened is, I think, I think what, is what should happen now is that people should ask for a very truthful, factual acknowledgement that it should be known just as the previous generation knew what the truth was. I think it's important to now have it in records, in writing, and widely known. This happened, and we want to know it so it doesn't happen again. As simple as that. But it's incredibly complicated to get there. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I just want to echo some of what Debelina is saying that, you know, there are organizations and individuals who are speaking out. And if you go to HEF's uh, commemoration page for the 1971 Bengali Hindu genocide, you'll see um, stories from some of the um, individuals who are actively working to bring awareness to the issue and actively working to help um, Hindus in Bangladesh and, and minorities in Bangladesh today. Um, so one of them you'll see is the uh, blog post uh, written by our content writer, Shama Allard. Um, and it's an interview with Bria Saha, who's a, um, she's had such an interesting journey and I'll, I'll let uh, listeners Google her journey and, and, and read her story on our website, genocide1971.com. Um, she's had such a amazing story and just her story of survival, as Dabalina mentioned before, you know, there, it was hard in India, um, even, you know, in 1971 and the years after, uh, you know, 18 family members of Bria Sahas uh, died in the um, refugee camps there. Um, is, you know, just have a huge concentration of people, as we know now with social distancing, when you get a lot of people together, there's, you know, diseases that are transmitted. And it's, it, there were so many challenging situations that resulted um, we also have an interview with Ashok Karmakar, uh, an attorney who um, is with the um, Hindu Buddhist Christian Unity Council USA, um, who's doing a lot to help uh, Hindus in Bangladesh now. And we also have an interview with Ruksana Hasib, who tells a Muslim perspective on um, the genocide in 1971. So we have a lot of original stories there um, and just examples of people who are speaking out, who are telling their stories so that it can be remembered, um, so that we can support Hindus in Bangladesh today, and so we can remember the lost and celebrate those who survived um, and honor those who have survived. So a lot is, there's a lot that's being done, but at the same time, um, as Debelina mentioned before, there is some hesitation and, and silence to be reckoned with. Yeah, so Dipali, I have a follow-up to this, and now I want to get into something. So let me draw a picture for both of you. So I've never been able to figure this one out, but it was uh, kind of inevitable. But, uh, you know, uh, I don't know how to put it because I'm totally opposed to that uh, entire working framework. But, you know, we used to, I don't know, man, uh, you know, mankind people kind so people kind I don't know Trudeau's got issues so you know we're used to being uh, in a culture of I don't know honor and 
these days especially uh, you know both of you are from the mother load of uh, wokeness uh, the united states of america the mothership you know from where uh, wokeness ki janani um, united states of america the french might object they'll be like nahi nahi humne kiya tha but nahi, the united states uh, as always you know they like to scale things up to capitalist proportions and then spread it to the world so nowadays we've gone into this um, the zeitgeist has gone from honor to victimhood so you know there is an oppression olympics everybody wants to be oppressed and everybody is like you know i am the gold med- gold medalist in oppression now in all of this there is real oppression there are really oppressed people there are really traumatizing stories and both sides are equally true what i am saying about the oppression olympics is also true and what is happening is equally true but something very weird is happening and this has not, this is not just specific to bengali hindus this is about hindus in general i mean we we already know what's happening in rutgers we already know what's happening in uh, in many universities uh, you know what happened in in england with rashmi sawant too now it's very interesting that somehow in this global narrative the hindu does not get a seat at the table you know as if you know your oppression is not oppression you're just a dirty pagan go and sit there you dirty pagan you your oppression does not matter so in this we already have the hierarchy we even within hindu oppression you know punjabis have captured bollywood they say oh shut up my oppression is above your bengali oppression so how do we manage tell me dipali i'll start with you in such a scenario where there are hierarchies within hierarchies where the hindu doesn't get a say anyways nobody cares and and i don't know how else to put it it's just a fact of life because uh you guys are suffering it you know you guys are fighting back you guys are actively fighting a lawsuit where you know suhag had come on the podcast and she spoke about it the point is there is the oppression where hindus anyways don't get a seat at the table and then within our own oppression olympics we have the bengali saying bhai hum bhi mare the humko bhi sun lo galti se so how do we manage that dipali so tell me first uh, you and then obviously devlina too Yeah and so uh thank you for asking this question and I don't I don't know that Bengalis are necessarily like they're not participating in the oppression olympics so <laughs> as far I, I don't know they're not they could yeah. not so let me correct there is an oppression olympics poor bengalis don't even get a seat at the table within the yeah. indian discourse yeah and so um you know i think speaking from the american perspective and as an american myself A lot of times when there's conversations about Hinduism it's kind of you know and just speaking from personal experience it's tra- it's trapped in Indian politics. And so moving beyond Indian politics this is something that was between Pakistan and Bangladesh. Bangladesh was seceding from Pakistan so it was West Pakistan and East Pakistan and Bangladesh became its own country in 1971 through the liberation war and through this genocide um where 2 to 3 million people died 10 and 10 million were displaced and talking about this um and and me and Devlina have talked about this at length um you know facts are not violence um and we need to make sure that we take out take things out of the in- context of indian politics because hindus are a majority in india and hindus actively don't want to oppress or discriminate against minorities and so there is that politics among hindus um who actively don't want to 
foment violence by, you know, over being being too overbearing, um, it would seem. So I think one of the really important things is to take things in their own context. This is in the context of Bangladesh, where Hindus are still discriminated against. They're the largest minority in Bangladesh. Um, there's daily oppression. And so that's the context that we need to work within. But I think because, and, and so this, the question you're asking is a very important one, and it's, it's, it's much bigger than something we can address today. But you'll see that throughout the world, there's not a lot of, you know, even if it's the, you know, um, Hindus in Bhutan that are being specifically targeted, they'll be called Nepalese Bhutanese. Or if it's the Hindus in Bangladesh that are being targeted, you know, it's, it's, they were identified at the time as Bengalis. Um, and, and the same thing with Tamils in Sri Lanka. I mean, each and every time it's a linguistic, it's a, you know, a national identity that is used to identify violence against Hindus. And there's a tremendous amount of erasure that's happening. And so I think we need to, um, we need to be able to talk about facts without the fear that this is somehow, um, this is somehow problematic to acknowledge that there is violence against Hindus. Because, you know, as human beings, there will naturally be violence against all human beings at some point or another. Each one of us will experience, to a greater or lesser degree, some form of, of violence or discrimination. You know, it may be a small thing or maybe a larger thing. Um, but there is no oppression Olympics. And there, I think, from the West, um, there has been some. Um, scholars who have noted that the genocides that have occurred in the West and sometimes in China have been labeled as a genocide. Those that occurred, um, basically those that um, were perpetrated against those of darker skin color weren't necessarily considered a genocide. Um, and so there's a lot of reasons potentially for this. Um, I think you just raised an excellent question, but I think Hindus themselves have to speak up and be comfortable with identifying instances where things are problematic, they're potentially violent, they're potentially discriminatory, and acknowledging that is not in itself problematic. Um, it's facts are facts, and acknowledging uh, what is happening or acknowledging what has happened um, is an act of nonviolence. And uh, Dabalina, I'll let you speak uh, about this more, but ma making sure we remember our history uh, making sure that we, um, you know, speak to what's happening, making sure that we remember the loss. These are all nonviolent acts. Um, there's nothing inherently, the actions that HAF is calling for, and I'm going to um, just run through some of them really, really quickly. Um, a digital archive to remember the stories of those um, that are survivors. And I'd like to talk about this a little bit more um, to encourage listeners who are survivors to contribute and to raise awareness about this issue. A community art project as a way of mourning those that were lost and celebrating the survivors. Uh, opportunity to take action and ask elected officials in the United States to make a statement affirming the genocide. If you're outside of the United States, you can also do this with your local officials. Go to genocide1971.com for more information about how you can take action. Um, there's a, a lesson plan where you can engage with this in school. You can bring it to your teachers if you're a student. Um, you know, bring this to your teacher if you're a teacher. Consider including a short lesson plan, educating the students. None of this is 
problematic in nature. It's all about acknowledging facts. And so I think the question you raise is an excellent one. I think, you know, uh, we, we don't have enough time or, or scope to talk about it here, but there's a lot that can be done in the space of nonviolence and it should be done. It's our moral imperative to remember the lost and celebrate survivors um, and to support those that are suffering now um, in all communities. And Hindus as human beings are just one group that is also uh, being discriminated against in various places in the world. So thank you for asking this. I think Dabalina, you'll have a lot more to say on this. Uh, I'll take a different time. Thank yeah. you. Thank you for leading off with facts. And Kushal, thank you for leading off with the framing, because I think that's exactly what we are speaking to, the facts versus framing. And you know, uh, we have all these um, things, these truisms that we know, that history is written by the victors, et cetera. But here is the point. If we don't acknowledge every act of excessive violence, what do human rights mean? If there is no common humanity, you know, I mean, I'm making an argument here. We can have, the, the debate is for another time, but the point is, I'm going to say this. In a multi-conceptual world, what should be or is proportionate justice? When we talk about justice, we talk about rights, we talk about equality, equity, we talk about restoring health and order to something that is the body politic that has become diseased, injured. And the partition was one such wound. And there is a sense that, oh, you know, we can be that oxbow, the partition can be an ox, little oxbow lake, the river just leaves behind and flows on. And it's an aberration. It's an aberration. It was an infection. And then, you know, it's in the self, in the other. And it's a historical convulsion. And if we leave it behind, it will not happen again. Now, the point is um, raising the question of such well, one particular community in the context of others, because we don't live in isolated little bubbles or vac vacuums of planets. We live amongst each other and there are cultures of intermingling and there's history of intermingling. So the raising, I think what happens is people mistake advocacy for one community to be a competition or a speaking against. And I think bringing, that's why I said facts versus framing, it is about what narrative we are entering. Are we trying to say, I, I'm, my mission is to work for this and we are competing for something in a big marketplace of ideas, such as you mentioned the United States where, you know, identity and identity and the politics of identity is, is, is quite a bit of a cultural uh, moment. So it's, it's about where we are speaking to, but I think, I think for the sub, for the people who are directly, who were directly affected, who might have, and other people in the world who might have been targeted systematically decreased, diminished, depleted in number, or displaced, there are things to learn. There is a cognitive partition. If we refuse to name a targeting for what it is and what it becomes because of exigent circumstances, then we are keeping a partition in our mind alive. And I'm, I'm playing a little bit with the whole undivided Bengal trope here because People fear that, oh, acknowledging the violence will kind of make that division a reality and they will forever be divided from who they were and what they want to be and, you know, what reality is now. I, I think there are all these things mixed up in, in people's, then there's a resistance to kind of saying this happened to this community under these conditions and we need to know the conditions that favored particular targeting because it shouldn't happen to anybody. Um, I honestly feel that it, this 
there is a difference between saying, between partializing an identity and saying Hindu Bengalis in Bangladesh were targeted. There's a difference between saying that and there's a difference between saying, oh no, uh, their, their, their Hinduness was greater. In that moment, their Hinduness became greater than their Bengali identity or their Bengali nationality. And so people, I think it's important to make those distinctions and to understand that historical moments create those fractures. Now, whether the fractures should or should not happen, those have been discussed in books by very many people by, and the forums are different. I think it matters to the people who were trapped, who had one plot of land, who escaped with just half a sari, and the people who are there now. And over the years, between 1971 and now, people who maybe had, uh, you know, um, their religious places desecrated, uh, the blood on their door, they couldn't keep their girls safe. I mean, so many people, the stories are so common. Like every time, the, once a girl grows up, they, they just come come here. They come to the come to come to India. Sorry, excuse me. And the fact that these things cannot be spoken about in in aid of keeping alive a, a land of two rivers upon is, I think, is the, I think a, a false romanticization. There should not be a, a, you know competing oppressions or histories of oppression, but there should be a question of acknowledgement of what the cost of liberation was and what is liberation, what is freedom, what is sovereignty for certain people and what is not. So uh, I think I may have wandered into um, no, no, a little so bit I of the personal, but pull me back if uh, you feel I have any. No, no, no. So I, I have a follow-up to this. So I have a follow-up and my follow-up is this. So what happens is, uh, whether we like it or not, everything in life is politics. Everything in life is interconnected with politics. And, and what I see is like... Uh, you know, the politics in India, even in Punjab, I think somewhere in the zeitgeist of Punjab, Pakistan does play a role in the psyche of Punjab, whether in a good way or a bad way, it depends. When we are at war, the zeitgeist of Punjab is, oh, kind of a thing. You know, it, it flips very... The thing is, the India-Pakistan relation, and here's my angle, Devalina, and I think this is where sometimes, you know, the Bengali Hindu genocide does not get spoken about as much as the the you know, the Punjabi Hindu one or the Sindhi Hindu one for that matter is that, you know, India and Pakistan have consistently maintained a bad relation. I know it sounds crazy, but, you know, we have managed to hate each other for 71 years. In the case of Bangladesh, at least we try to pretend that, you know, Naini, we love mm -hmm. each other. You know, we try to do our, you know, puppy jappy, whatever we do through our politics, whatever the nonsense is. So do you think it is also because that we as nations, Bangladesh and India have a far better relationship. And that's just the fact of the matter. Then say Pakistan and India. Because of that, the horrific stories of the Bengali Hindus also suffer in the overall narrative of the nations. I think there is definitely some... Uh, the comment on political relations, I think it's more complex because it's a question of, uh, I think one of the facts that I honestly didn't acknowledge and didn't wasn't aware of is that uh, Bangladesh is considered a, an Islamic state and it has a state religion. So I, you know, that, that complicates what a Bengali Hindu is on this or that side of the border. So I think definitely the fact that there are multiple generations who have that memory of shared history, shared families, shared marriages, uh, makes the two countries. And there's a, there's a huge focus of language. I mean, one of the things you have to remember that one of the 
think the Pakistanis, uh, East Pakistan banned was the use of Rabindra Sangeet. So one of the things that happened in 1971 was that the channels stopped airing as many Pakistani, uh, you know, things on the air and they started playing this, the music. And that is, that you would still see the emphasis on music and books and, you know, we speak the same, we have the same ethos. That does contribute to some. But I'll say this. Amitav Ghosh has this phrase, the writer, cultures of accommodation and compromise. Now, there is a cost to that. I have extended family who've stayed behind in Bangladesh for whom crossing the border was never a good proposition. Would I say that they didn't have to compromise? I would say yes. And so when you scale that up to multiple people, it does matter. But for those who face an uncertain future there, who are not socioeconomically so strong, I think it is for them that we should be concerned. Uh, those who have the luxury of concepts, right? of conceptualizing and abstracting the matters of bread and matters of love, uh, which is actually what identity and all that is about. You know, we, we forget that those are not the preoccupations of daily life for a lot of people. Uh, I mean, the, the, the luxury of concepts, that it is bread and bread and love are really become becoming the important thing. So um, it, political relations aside, I think there is always scope for truth and there is a way there is a way that non-action should not be taken forward the, or rather let me put it the other way the way forward is not non-action i i don't think i really don't think that you know uh, leaving all this unsaid is the road to a new identity to diversity to peaceful multicultural coexistence i don't think this degree of forgetting aids any new life that Bengali Hindus or Bengalis in general try to make for themselves in Bangladesh, in India or beyond. Hmm. All right, Dipali. So I have this question for you. I, I, and then I'll take a few questions from the live viewers too. But um, so let's say, you know, people who are going to be watching this on YouTube now or later on, um, or let's say, you know, who's going to listen to the audio version on Spotify or iTunes. So the average listener, it doesn't matter if you're Bengali, non-Bengali, I don't care what your religion is. So if they were to come to you, so how can they get involved in something like this, Dipali? Yeah, thank you so much for asking. Um, so if you go to the website, genocide1971.com, um, which is the Hindu American Foundation's commemoration website of the 1971 Bengali Hindu genocide, you'll find a variety of ways to get involved. and and things that like actions that should be taken and kind of echoing what uh, Dabalina said, nonviolence isn't the way forward. And, you know, nonviolence isn't inaction, which is something else that uh, me and Dabalina have spent some time discussing is not, to be nonviolent doesn't mean to not do anything. Um, so there's a lot that we can do in the space of nonviolence in the space of, of um, mutual respect and pluralism. And so I mentioned some of those already, but the first thing I would encourage all listeners to do is um, learn more about what happened. Um, educate yourself, educate your families and your communities. There's a lot of resources on the website from a variety of perspectives that'll help give some um, understanding. And, you know, again, we have a lot of reliable sources 
on the website um, from the New York Times to you know, Forbes articles from the journalism standpoint. We have um, you know, great scholarship such as that done by Gary Bass, The Blood Telegram, personal stories um, that are being communicated and everything in between to explain what happened during the genocide. What exactly um, were the twists and turns that led to this tragedy being labeled a genocide and that culminated in the death of so many. Um, so that's the first thing. And then in addition, I would encourage everyone um, to go ahead and if you're an artist, um, so there's different options. If you're an artist, I would say uh, go onto the website genocide1971.com and contribute your art, at, you know, original or an ad adaptation of something to specifically commemorate the genocide. Um, that process of mourning is important, of honoring those that are lost is important. And art is one way we could process, as you said, these huge, overwhelming numbers of people um, that, that passed away, that um, were raped, that were displaced, and make sure that they're remembered, but they're remembered in a way that is, you know, is really honoring their humanity. Um, in addition, for survivors in particular, I would just like to reiterate we have a digital archive that's compiling stories, that's trying to retain this history to make sure it's not lost. And we'll use this information to simply raise awareness, just as we're doing um, through this podcast, through the website, and in so many other ways, to make sure that the details of this history are remembered, to make sure that you know there's human dignity in all of this, and that we find our way back to that. Um, so, so that's one of the other ways. And again, there's a lesson plan if you're a teacher or a student and want to get involved that way. There's a variety of ways to take action. So I would encourage each and every person to start with educating yourself um, and then continue with taking meaningful action, whatever that means. If it means educating your community, creating artwork, submitting your story or your family story, um, if you're you know, a survivor, and making sure that speaking out um, against violence is not problematic. It's not a competition. Saying that Hindus were targets does not mean that nobody else was target. Absolutely, there were other targets of this genocide. Hindus were the primary target. But just as, you know, and, and just as with all forms of violence against Hindus, saying that Hindus were targets does not mean that nobody else is a target and that we shouldn't also speak up for those other communities. Um, so those are some ways to get involved, is, is to educate yourself, to not be hesitant in speaking out um, and having these open conversations, um, you know, submitting to the digital archive, submitting to the community art project, taking advantage of the resources for taking action, um, both, you know, making sure that elected officials affirm the genocide by making sure that this is, this is something that it, students can learn about in schools. Um, all of those opportunities are there on the website and, and a few more. So please do take a look. Um, and maybe we could put that in the chat somewhere so people can click on it. So De Debelina, I have a follow-up on the same thing. So could you point out some, let's say, you know, popular movies or you know, dramas that, you know, it might be in Bengali, but these days we have subtitles. So are there any of those resources where we can actually go and access them and maybe find out about stories, you know, because 
there's nothing like a good movie that can narrate a story <laughs> you've asked a very difficult question to what is a probashi bangali somebody who grew up as hindi with hindi as her first language i can wow. tell you <laughs> i don't read bengali very well this is a problem right you're coming into your own story um i think uh i would suggest that hf might want to add a cultural history page and i'm happy to contribute there right now um i'm going to try and think up some things but i am reliant on uh what was i think what was told to me as a known story i think there are there have been there have been movies from bangladesh it's a language uh question i will look that up and there are projects commemorating this all the time uh in terms of i think one of the things i have encountered my generation knows of as what was true in 1971 and is it still true that's a question i always ask i've always been pointed to taslima nasreen and i i did look at lajja shame and it bears thinking about if we are want to understand conditions uh but i think i would also say that we we probably need uh, multilingual translations of things uh for example my understanding of the native american genocides was through similar interesting stories and so talking about the surrounded people um i must confess i'm drawing a lot of blanks right now i'm uh, apologies to your audience but they would i think any most bengalis would know much more uh I'll pause there. You know, Dipali, so maybe I, you would have heard something from our other uh, other contributors. If not, we'll take it up on the page. No, there are definitely um, like movies, like um, I don't know what the movie industry in Bangladesh is called, but uh, really well done uh, movies, documentaries from 1971 and onwards. Um, in Bengali uh, and in uh, I think what there was one done in Hindi. Um so if you search YouTube there's a variety of things um again my first language is in Bengali so I'm uh bumping up against the same things here but uh there's a couple of documentaries that I would um recommend so there is Rising Silence which talks about the rape of women and it um highlights the rape of Hindu women Muslim women um and I think uh Buddhist women as well um during that time Um there's also a lot um that um stories of Bengali Hindus have done in terms of shorter documentaries um but there's definitely some beautiful um beautiful songs beautiful um like movies films that have been done that do document the liberation war in particular and it's definitely framed for the most part in terms of a liberation war rather than a genocide and so that's important to remember there Bangladesh they're the victors here they were able to secede from pakistan uh, and they were liberated so that's something that is highlighted in a majority of these films um but definitely definitely um it's worth looking into if you're bengali speaking and it's it's in the ether and these come out every few years yeah i actually dug out the two books that were recommended to me and are on my reading list they are not popular books at least to my imagination and my training is more from the post colonial theoretical side so they are in bangla unfortunately and ami bijoy dekhechi i have seen victory and mukti juddher itihash the history of the liberation war 
Um, and I'm told that the uh, Bangladesh uh, consulates, the, the embassies would have documentary evidence that many, many people who uh, still have ties to Bangladesh know about. All right, so I want to talk about something. I don't know how to put it, but I think it is a very important discussion to have. Now, it's very interesting, but I don't know why people don't want to talk about it, but I always have this, at least in Punjabi circles, we can have these discussions. But so I'll use the analogy of uh, Jammu and Kashmir. So when the Pandit exodus happened in Jammu and Kashmir, uh, the role of the neighbors was horrifying. Uh, I'll be even more... Uh, specific the role of the muslim neighbor uh, somebody has asked this question in the live chat and i think it's a fair question because it, it, you know as a punjabi i can tell you uh, we we we've heard enough uh, stories in the punjab partition too where these kinds of things do happen so so debelina have there been stories that have been you know, kind of uh, there in terms of, uh, you know, the neighbors kind of ratting the them out, you know, one fine day, you're just living with this person. And then the partition happened. And apparently, certainly my identity matters. And my, uh, you know, identity as a Hindu is some sort of a problem. Have there been uh, stories like that? Yes. Uh, and again, this is what I've been told. Uh, one of the things that I know from my family about Operation Searchlight, which was the Pakistani operation, uh, the crackdown on uh, March 25th, 1971, is that the when the conflict spread to rural areas, city to uh, door to door, um, that was uh, that was that expressly provided opportunities for neighbor to set against neighbor. And it was about setting the Urdu-speaking population against the Bengali-speaking population, about the Muslim against the Hindu. The incitement, the advantages offered were different. But, uh, you know, the local hoodlums uh, were used because, you know, the, the, an invading army doesn't have an understanding of the rural areas. And so I think local goons were, they, I mean, the, the army was less than confident in carrying out the combing operation. So when individual houses were targeted, it was always local help. And yes, there were people, uh, you know, Muslim neighbors, if they sheltered Hindus uh, were targeted. So it was quite, I think the, the conditions for making sure that neighbor would not shelter neighbor were set in place. Mm -hmm. And those stories are very, very uh, common. So, you know, and with I think the interesting thing is survivors always make it very, very clear that it was a politicized uh, thing and that religion was was, you know, used in a very political way to set one person against the other. Um, the other stories in muted registers are about, OK, so my my daughter's growing up and she's getting, you know, the, too much attention in the neighborhood. And now we need to get out those are the stories I think that are not officially recorded. You would hear them in a line, you would hear them in how people escaped. But uh, I personally do not have stories of, uh, people saw friends and relatives targeted and killed. But as I said, there were also, uh, you know, competing political interests among the Muslim speaking, Muslim Bengali speaking population. So they did help when they could. It is, it is a, it was a typical war zone. Some helped when they could, but there was no incentive to help. And after that, I think that one of the complicating factors was the Enemy Property Act that started with the conception of Pakistan and then which later became the Vested Property Act. And 
that is an incentive. If you look at, I think there's been studies where the amount of land taken away from the minority non-Muslim population of Bangladesh uh, was then concentrated in very few hands. And that wrong was never done right. So not being able to own land, not you know your land taken away from you, th those, those are at the local level, knowing which bodies have Hindu majorities or there is just a, there was just a lot of local knowledge deployed in very systematic ways. All right, so one movie has been recommended by a listener, Arpit. He says, Children of War is a very good Bengali movie that talks about the 1971 genocide. So, you know, people can go and check it out. Now, uh, Dipali, there was one more question before we wrap it up. Uh, all right, so we've covered pretty much everything, but it's still there's something missing in this entire narrative and and i and, and i still feel that somewhere down the line uh, there is always this pushback when we talk about us as a united hindu identity and whenever we talk about ourselves as a united hindu identity you know everybody gets uh, you know gets ants in their pants i, I don't know how else to put it but why do you think uh, that is an issue, Dipali? Why, why can't we? So, it's, you know, there are Shia-Sunni differences, but then everybody comes together and nobody talks about it. There are Catholics and Protestants, but they are, everybody comes together and they're all Christians and holding hands and singing Kumbaya. But the moment, okay, Bengali Hindus have their unique identity. You know, Punjabi Hindus have their unique identity. Sindhi Hindus have their unique identity. The moment we try to come together, everybody, why are you why do you think that everybody gets ants in their pants only when Hindus conglomerate and unite? Why is that, Dipali? I think, again, that's an excellent question. And um, I think, you know, this is something that as a Hindu community, we should continue to talk about. Um, how can we acknowledge um, violence against our communities without... It's not, it's, it's not a violent act, like I said before, to acknowledge facts. Um, and so saying that this genocide happened, saying that it specifically targeted Hindus um, should not be an issue, but it definitely you know, has been for some people to actually be able to see that. And for Hindus in particular, who, you know, as, as we've been talking about, don't want to acknowledge Hindu violence against Hindus because it could potentially, because they feel that it's necessarily advocating against other communities, which is not the case. And, and so that's kind of part of, and, and I think, you know, Debelina and Kushal, you could speak to this much better than I, but the Indian notions of secularism that, you know, we need to lift up uh, minority communities. And, and it's a really beautiful sentiment, but that doesn't exist everywhere in the world. And so Hindus are targets uh, where, uh, in places where they're minorities and um, maybe targets even where they're the majority, but. I feel that there's, in, in order to be politically correct, in order to feel that you're supporting all people, minim, if you're a Hindu, minimizing the violence against Hindus, minimizing the violence that you may have experienced yourself is part and parcel of that. And so I think that's one of the reasons is because of the political, the political options are limited um, for, for being a Hindu publicly and for being a Hindu community publicly. 
Um, and so you only can be you can only have certain political identities if you're a Hindu publicly. There's not where is the Hindu left? Where are the you know progressives? Apparently they don't exist. Um, but you know that's of course not the case. Speaking at you know for myself, I definitely don't identify with um, that strongly with uh, you know what the political identity is assumed to be for Hindus. So there's assumed political identity. And so it, because there's only one option, you only get to be Hindutva. You don't get to be, if you're publicly Hindu, you're advocating for Hindus, you're talking about the Hindu experience, there's no other option. You have to be that. And so if you don't necessarily identify with that and you, and you feel that you know, there are other political identities that are uh, more appropriate for you, then you have to minimize violence against Hindus. And, you, and, and so that's, what, that's just one of the many, many um, facets to this. But in terms of the Bengali Hindu genocide, we should note that the Bangladesh government calls this a Bengali genocide and does not acknowledge that Hindus in particular were targets, which is, a, there's political reasons for this, which we can understand, but you know, Hindus are a minority in Bangladesh and are still the targets today. Also, uh, like, as I mentioned before, this was not acknowledged by the United Nations and this inaction was damning, even despite several nations raising the issue inside of the United Nations. And I think uh, just one last thing I'd like to note is that this, you know, this, uh, there's this comfortability with erasure um, that, you know, comes from a variety of places of the Hindu sentiment of, you know, onwards and upwards of not wanting to, you know, uh, not wanting to have a certain political identity and wanting to speak for everybody um, that is is minimizing and normalizing violence against Hindus. And of course, this is not, again, a, a statement that other groups are not targeted today in this very moment and that we shouldn't also speak out for them. We should speak out for violence against all people everywhere. Hindus are also people that are being targeted. And so the 200 to 400,000 women who are raped, two to three million that were killed, and up to 10 million displaced need our voice. And those that are suffering, uh, the Hindus and people from all communities today also need our voice. And so we need to make ourselves comfortable with that. If you don't mind, might I add something? Sure. So I'm going to speak in more blunt terms than Dipali. Dipali put it very gracefully, but here is it. We have to face facts. It's great for uh, different stripes of people who hail from the subcontinent to identify with regional or sub-regional or other kinds of divisions. That's fine. That's part of their identity, how they belong. But I think it's important, and it's good to be sensitive to the fact that, oh, maybe Hinduism is what we were called. It was an imposed identity. It's great to be aware of historical factors that you know divide and also collectivize the people. But I think it's important to face facts right now that regardless of what people in the subcontinent know or believe, they are classed and categorized in legal and material ways across the world in ways that are adverse to their interests. This is not about what we want to happen and therefore it will be. And that is an ideal state, ideal reality. Right now, it is about acknowledging this is what we are thought of as. And if what we are thought of as is used to harm, directly harm a person who maybe is not sitting like us, you know, able to conceptualize and talk about this, is going to face something tomorrow at, at their home. 
and their child is going to be abducted or converted or uh, under duress in ways where they do not have a choice. They cannot escape it and it has finalized consequences. That is a collective responsibility. Individual choices are great, but in representative societies, choices add up. So when we decide to leave behind our trouble, we gloss over de facto a reality for someone else. That is the choice we have to make. Absolutely. Oh, oh I totally agree with you. And you know what? Uh, as far as I'm concerned, I say this openly. Do I criticize Hindutva many times? I do. I will own that label like anything. And I say this to people on their face. And you know, in the global discourse, people don't like it when I say it. You know, the West likes to fetishize pagans. In the West, in, the, in their discourse, the only good pagan is a dead pagan. A pagan culture that was destroyed. A pagan culture that can be put in a museum in that corner. Oh, look at those people. They do those weird dances and make oh look at that elephant. Oh, look at that monkey. You know, it's oh, look at the lady with the eight hands. That's all. They want to fetishize you. But here's the thing: the reason they don't like Hindutva at times is this Hindu bites verbally, not physically, talks back says, no, 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 no. That elephant is my God. And you know what? Screw you. I don't care. I don't live by the standards you set. I don't live by your worldview. I live by my worldview and I will do what I want to do. And I think people need to get used to it. Another good resource that we are talking about, you know, Bengali genocide. So I think we should also share Bengali history, and that's one book that helped me a lot. By the way, oh, lo and behold, the weird secularism of India has suppressed this book like nobody. It is by the great R.C. Majumdar, and okay. it is the history of Bengal, volume one and volume two. So it's yes. in English. Volume one is the Hindu period, and the volume two is the Muslim period. Go read it. You will understand Bengali history very, very well. That man gave us the greatest, did the greatest service to us. You know, he wrote the history and culture of Indian people, that nine to 11,000 page behemoth volume. You can go and check it out. You'll find everything about India. But this is where. So, you know, let's wrap things up for the day. But before we wrap it up, Dipali, I'll come to you and Devalina. Then you can chime in. Uh, you know, any last words? So please go for it. Yeah, I mean, in terms of last words, thank you so much for having us. And I would just say, you know, we need to come together as a Hindu community. This is 50 years since the Bengali Hindu genocide. Um, this April is Genocide Awareness Month, as Kushal mentioned in the beginning. And so this is a perfect opportunity to raise awareness about this issue, to share um, everything we have on the genocide1971.com website. Uh, to make sure that this history isn't forgotten, that we bring human dignity back um, to the survivors and we help those Hindus and other minorities in Bangladesh today to, to be able to have a voice, to be able to you know, mobilize. Um, there are daily attacks on Hindus and other minorities in Bangladesh and there's a lot of whitewashing of that violence today. 
And so we have to speak out about the past. We have to speak out about the violence that's happening now. And we cannot do it with any hesitation. We have to do it with frankness and honesty and openness. Um, there's nothing lost in, in speaking out, but there's, there's a lot to gain. So those are the last thoughts that I'll leave you with. Yeah, absolutely everything to gain. And I'll speak to the personal note first. Here's the thing. Uh, my husband and I, when we both entered our father-in-law's story, um, it, it's in the middle of life. And so I think we both realized that if we had known the details earlier, we would have looked at life a little bit differently, perhaps valued things differently because of how things were built, how fragile life can be. Um, my father kept silent about what he saw in 1950, uh, and he passed away without leaving his stories. When I spoke to Rajmohan Gandhi a long time ago in the US, he said, oh yeah, the silence exists even on the Western side of you know, Western partition also. And so this, this intergenerational loss should not be allowed. If everything doesn't have to become a, 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 you know, a question of violence in response, it's a question of keeping alive a memory, a cord of memory, you know? Uh, and that's part, that, that's, that's the umbilical cord. It's the, it's the root we have to grasp. So that's the part. The second part I would say is that I think it's important to speak in very measured voices with very ethical uh, words and very make ethical choices. Because here's the point, self-annihilation by a designated party doesn't stop violence. It won't stop there. That's not the answer self-negation, that if I take myself out of the picture, at least, you know, this will stop. I don't think that's the answer. And I would, these are individual choices again. I am speaking up. There should not be a cost to speaking out. And I would hope to see that eventually this is acknowledged as something that needs to be learned by second, third, fourth generation uh, of survivors and something that they should learn so that they can see the early signs and it doesn't happen again. It doesn't matter what religion you belong to. It shouldn't happen. Social risk is everyone's problem. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more with you. So, you know, it's time to wrap things up once again to both of you. Thanks a lot for coming on the podcast. Uh, it's it's a pleasure to talk to you. And, and I assure you, this is not the last time we're talking. We're going to talk about this all the time, every time. You know, the irony is I wanted to leave this bit of information for the last of my closing remarks. People have a problem with Hindutva. Guess who coined the word Hindutva? It was a Bengali. <laughs> It was a Bengali who coined the word Hindutva. I think it was in 1892. It was Chandranath Basu who coined the term Hindutva. You know, oh. the revivalism of Hinduism. There, there are great Bengali thinkers. Aurobindo, Swami Vivekanand, Ramakrishna Parmahans. Do you think they did not have the concept or the idea of India when they were talking about their Hinduness? Come on, give me a break. Bengal is as much as a part of India as, you know, there is a lot of times there is this clique within our society that like, no, 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 we are Bengalis. This is our Bengali culture. <laughs> I don't like to swear a lot on my podcast, but you get my message right now. Yeah, everybody should get what I'm trying to say. We are all in this together. And you know, the best part is nobody, everybody thinks Savarkar coined Hindutva. No, it was a Bengali who coined it. That person <laughs> knew something. He was like, no, this is just my Hindu-ness. 
it is expressed in a yes. multitude of ways you know and and i always say this you know the diaspora hindu experience which is why i i always invite suhag i invite sachin nanda from uk we are different but we are together and this is why the pagan is no longer a museum piece to be fetishized the pagan is here the pagan is going to talk the pagan is going to object you don't like it but too bad we're going to talk we're going to bite back intellectually with references with footnotes so we'll wrap things up for the day as always it has been a pleasure to talk to both of you and i hope to continue this again uh guys uh i appreciate all the support that you give to the podcast so once again please like the video subscribe to the channel share your comments share this video with other people you know enlighten people about the bengali hindu genocide and i say this as a punjabi because everybody talks about the punjabi genocide you know everybody talks about the horror stories of the trains of dead bodies coming into amritsar from lahore and going in from amritsar to lahore we have all and let me tell you i say this as a punjabi because i've heard stories from my own parents from my grandparents partition is a scar that we will never get over I, and i and nobody will understand this other than the people who have faced the scar at a personal level as a community so i understand what the bengalis feel because my community went through it i understand are sindhu sindhi logon ka socho unka to pranti chale gaya punjabiyon aur bengaliyon ko to fir bhi kuch to mila sindhiyon ko to kuch nahi mila unko to bola chal ja idhar se are kahan jaau aur bombay mein bitha diya do jagahon pe kidhar aur bitha diya just imagine the trauma that a community has to go through so to say ki kya ho gaya are kya ho gaya bhai nikal ke phek diya aur understand the bengali movement and the genocide happened 50 years ago what is 50 years i'm 40 years old <laughs> it was 10 years before i was born it's nothing so please take this seriously and once again thanks for all the support you can support me on youtube by becoming a member you can go and subscribe on patreon you can uh, directly send donations to the upi id or by the charvak podcast merch i try my best to talk about things that nobody wants to talk about and the beauty is they can't stop me and i'll do it again and again and again so until uh, until then i'll see you guys next time take care namaste goodbye